Welcome our impressionable audiences to our new podcast, The Global Overpass, where we debate and deliver the best hard-hitting analysis of political, social, and cultural issues in current news stories from across the globe. My name is Michael Poon, and here is my co-host from Toronto, Canada, Andy St. John. Hello! In this first episode, we have tons to cover this week from the west to the east. With a little intro, as this is our first episode of this podcast series, let us introduce more about ourselves so that people listening at home know who we are. Sure thing. Again, my name is Michael Poon, and I'm from KL, the capital of Malaysia. I'm a journalism student from the University of Toronto. My minor is in political science, in comparative politics and international relations. What about you, Andy? Well, my name is Andy St. John, and I'm from Toronto, Canada. I also am a journalism student from the University of Toronto Scarborough. My minor is also political science and film studies, and a really fun fact about myself is I have two cats and two dogs. Great. So our podcast seeks to educate, debate, and analyze political, social, and cultural issues with the overall goal of allowing the public to understand a global perspective towards contributing to the discussion of global affairs. So who better than us to be your guides to poli-sci journal students obsessed with news to break down these subjects? So to explain how our podcast works, we reviewed three news stories derived from news articles that have happened in the past week that is worth talking about more in detail. Then we discuss, analyze, and debate the news stories and hope that we could educate or give a little more context to everyone who's listening on the issues that are focused from these news stories. Also, since this is our first episode, it'll just be the two of us, but sometimes we will have a guest on the show. So, let's get right into it. Let's start off with the first news story of the week. Well, not really the week, but it just happened recently. So, let's start off with our first segment, Australia and Facebook. Sure. Michael, why don't you give us a brief two-sentence summary or a brief summary of what the issue is in Australia for those who may not know what it is? Two-sentence. I'll, I'll try my best. So essentially, there is a new proposed law happening in Australia, and the law entails that Facebook, Google, and other big tech companies, they have to pay news outlets that are based in Australia. And the reactions of it have been a little crazy. So the latest one, and since we stated Facebook in this title of this segment, is essentially that Facebook has banned uh, media outlets on Facebook to post any content related to the news to their users. And it's been... It's not been delightful, I would say, the reactions of it. What do you think about this, Andy? Um, I'm fairly upset with Facebook. I think both sides have issues because um, it is it is a difficult thing. I understand uh, news media around the world, but particularly in the English-speaking world. I mean, Australia has a very similar uh, media ecosystem to that of Canada because we're both former uh, British colonies and we both have that common ancestry. Um, I do think Facebook is more at fault, though, because I think with newspapers struggling so much online and with online revenue and other media companies struggling because of that, I think receiving some form of payment uh, when their stories are put on Facebook, for example, I think that really, really, it, it sounds good on paper. It sounds really, really good. But I think 
I think they should also address Facebook's concerns because I can understand like every single news story you don't want to have to pay for because I, I can understand that a little bit. But from but Facebook is one of the biggest companies in the world and Mark Zuckerberg is one of the biggest billionaires in the world. So I think he could afford like a few dollars out of his pocket just to help some poor struggling journalist. Um, Facebook's actions, especially like I found it quite immature on their part. I think they're they're kind of acting like big babies. By, uh, it was like Australians woke up one morning and uh, they could no longer find like access to news. I mean, they even went so far as to like block women shelters and like pages that help with COVID numbers. Like it's, I was fairly unimpressed. Uh, yeah, I think, I think there is the possibility of it happening in other countries. I think Canada would be more likely because again, there's the similarities between uh Canada and Australia, the same cultural background, and we do have some of the same laws, just different views and a lot of things still. But yeah, I was not very impressed with Facebook. What about you, Michael? Well, to give more context, when you mentioned the women's shelter and the COVID uh, part of your, uh, what you just said. So essentially what, what Andy was trying to say was that Facebook accidentally banned uh, Facebook users like uh, women's shelters or uh, COVID-related news that are not news media outlets. They're, they're not media outlets. They're actually, they are independent uh, medias that are not related to the news. Like they're their own organization, but they post news that they kind of research about themselves. Like they're not the mainstream media. So they're getting caught into the action as well. And to bring this up, so we're basing this information from the article that we're going to present right now. So the article about about this news is, we will see it is from the Global News. So the title of this article is called, Facebook Blocks Users in Australia from Sharing News. Could Canada be next? And you know what, based on what Andy said, it's definitely very interesting. Like, you know, Facebook should pay, right? News shouldn't be free. Yeah, I mean, looking at their article now, uh, it's saying, well, Google unit of Alphabet Inc. announced agreements to pay publishers in Australia. Facebook announced that it was blocking users in Australia from viewing or spreading news on its platform. I mean, this also is kind of a violation of uh, freedom of speech at the most fundamental level. Not to get all uh, Alex Jones on you or anything, but... um. Yeah. Well, well, the thing is, well, the thing is, you know, in this modern world, everyone's saying that, well, any person who is working in the news industry, they're struggling to get paid, right? Because now news is so accessible, especially on Facebook and Google and so many other like online platforms that aren't like taken over, well, not taken over, well, aren't supervised or aren't news corporations like if you go on facebook you will immediately be able to access a news article from any particular user and i will say they kind of get away with it because you know you don't have to pay for it unless you unless you're led to like a new york times article or at that case if you have have paywalls for that so they sort of resolve their own uh issues you only get a limited amount of free articles a month right so 
I mean, I think I'm paying $1 a week now to access the New York Times, which is a little annoying, but I'm like, eh, it's the New York Times, so it's probably worth it in the end. Well, uh, that's true, because it's like a prestigious news company. And also, I've seen recently about this issue. So uh, do you know Kevin Chan? No, I do not. Well, he's basically in charge of the, uh, I would say, the public policy of Facebook in Canada. So he's the head of public, I'm, I'm, I might get it wrong, but I think it's head of public policy of Facebook in Canada. And I've seen a recent video from a journalist from the Global Mail. They're trying to get a reaction from him when he was entering, well, when, when he was on the escalator. And basically, they're trying to get some quotes from him about, you know, something like, what Canada be next? Because based on this article that we just presented, it did say, like, could Canada be next? And one of the, I would say one of the people in government, his name is, I want to get this right. Uh, do you happen to know his name, Andy? I cannot remember off the top of my head. Uh, let me pull the news article on my phone. Uh, the one thing I wanted to ask you is, um, when it comes to Malaysia and, social, and spreading news on social media, um, how wide is freedom of speech in Malaysia? Like, how healthy is that right, and how much is it protected? Because I understand Malaysia in the past has had some issues related to, um, like, Indonesia, Malaysia, they've had some issues related to censorship and stuff. So, Well, it's exactly like you said. So right now in Malaysia, you know, censorship is still enforced in some ways you know not not as severe as china so that's no. that's self that's evident right china has a like there's there's the more freedom of information yeah like exactly. comparing it to singapore singapore from what i understand is um they allow a lot of freedom of speech on the internet like it's more or less unrestricted there but in the public sphere it's a little more restricted even though they are considered a democracy in practice they're like a one-party state more or less just dominated by this one party uh, and i think they've only had like three or four prime ministers during their entire span of independence like it's i think it's all one family actually too uh and it's just it's interesting looking at the surrounding countries and countries thinking and comparing it to canada and australia i'm not saying that like oh canada and australia are gonna restrict our rights and uh prevent freedom of speech like i'm not some right-wing nut job but it's just interesting to compare it to how uh, countries monitor and sort of share social media and what they allow and what they don't allow on it. So like in Canada and Australia, it's more or less pretty free. I mean, they're cracking down harder on uh, false information and misinformation because of COVID. Uh, Twitter is much more better than flagging down a uh, false info than Facebook. Facebook, I have not been very impressed with. Whenever I go on Facebook and I click on a news article, it's just like all this crap and links to like all these bogus sites claiming oh COVID isn't real and so on well like you said you know it's accessibility right so any so any company corporation user can enter facebook mm -hmm. uh, by the way the person i was referring to that is in the canadian government that's supporting this law in australia his name is stephen uh gilbo he's the canadian heritage minister so he is him, one so. of the yeah, so he's one of the few people that's supporting this law. I will say to my side that I do think that, you know, prestigious news corporations or independent news corporations that are trying to 
you know, be monetized. And as long as they don't post any news content that kind of, I would say, disparages like the news itself, like they should be allowed and they should get paid, right? Because they're doing journalistic work. But I kind of get your point when you're trying to say that literally any user, any corporation can enter Facebook. And that is a problem. Mm-hmm. And in this law, like I guess it's complicated in that sense that would Facebook have to pay them too? Like we're specifically talking about news corporations who are, I would say, sensationalizing and they don't really like research based upon facts if you know what i'm talking about right andy yeah just reading over the article right now i mean it's talking about it could potentially generate 620 million canadian dollars a year for publishers and prevent the loss of 700 jobs in journalism which sounds pretty good my one question is what is the pricing like what what are they going to charge per article is gonna be like a few cents or is it gonna be a few dollars or like ten thousand? i don't know do you know at all what the prices are well, I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's established yet. Yeah, it's for arbitrary something. Well, the thing is, you know, before even getting to that part, the reaction has been um, huge, right? Facebook banned like all these Australian-based news corporations. That's their reaction, and which is pretty immature. It is immature, and. Well, what's going to happen next? Are, like, will Australia be able to continue with this proposed law? I think so. And I think they will come to a compromise at some point. I think. Yeah. That's true. I think a compromise is I, possible. I think, I think both. I bet, like, news creators and, like, uh, media people are like, oh, this is great. And we're getting paid for stories, but we have no way of advertising it besides like Twitter and Google. Like we have no other way of advertising and Facebook, such a huge revenue stream and how we share it. So we obviously have to come to some sort of compromise or find a way to make this work for both parties that satisfies both parties. So, I mean, what, what is your, what is your side that you're taking on this? I'm on the side of the Australian government. I'm like, I think there does need to be something like this, like logically it makes sense. And if all these other countries are looking I mean, what's what's your take on it, though? Like, what's your opinion? What side are you taking? I am similar to you. However, I am worried about how are they going to define that Facebook or these big tech companies are paying these news corporations. But who are these news corporations? Are we talking about... Because there might be a bias from how I see it based on different regions of the world. If it's, let's say... Uh, you know, Canada is fairly liberal. Is it just going to be more emphasized on, you know, liberal-sided news corporations? Or is every news corporation getting paid by Facebook? Like, you know what I mean? Like, Well, the one thing in the article they're talking about is to come together and sort of form a international approach. I mean, it was like the Canadian guy talked to his... Finnish, French, German counterparts all about it, just trying to figure it out. So the article is sort of suggesting there's like a professor at U of T who specializes in social media. And he's like, we all need a common international approach, like almost kind of like international coalition, not against Facebook, but to like sort of regulate it more. And this sort of ties into bigger questions of kind of, because they're always talking about breaking up the banks. And now the other one's like, oh, we need to break up 
social media networks because of all the power and influence that they have and how they could spread false information right i mean they're always going on about that so that that ties into larger questions so that that's for another time i think i think there's gonna be no perfect way to do this i think the best approach is to come together like have all these different countries come together and work with facebook at the same time don't don't do like uh don't do like a munich agreement or something where you just yeah kind of like forget like czechoslovakia or something and they're like facebook's like czechoslovakia uh so don't do something like that so you have to have everyone at the table as equal partners and make sure all sides and all parties are satisfied that's what i honestly think i will agree with you right there so you know uh, our future episodes and if this news keeps getting bigger i'm pretty sure it's gonna be brought back but for now now let's move on to our second topic of our podcast which is about the myanmar military so andy would you like to give the audience a little bit of context about this uh yeah so myanmar's country in southeast asia um recently they had an election back in november at the same time the u.s election uh was largely seen as free and democratic by most of the world however the government stepped in or the military stepped in and they overthrew the uh democratically elected government and now they've been in power for about nearly a month now so um i could provide the historical context but it's way way too long so um yeah i mean what do you think of it michael as someone from more from that region what do you think that says for your region of the world so to kind of like say it again so i'm from malaysia i'm born in malaysia so i'm born in the southeast asia so it's pretty close to myanmar the, as Andy said, there was a recent election last November. They are the one who won the election. Is her name is Aung San Suu Kyi, so she won the election, and as Andy said, the military government pronounced it as fraud, and now she's in house arrest. And That's right crazy. now, yeah, and well, house arrest is not that she's been in house arrest for. A majority of her life. That's exactly what Donald Trump would say. So now there's a lot of protests going on. And based on our second article, which we will refer to about this topic, so it's by the CBC. And the title of the article is called Myanmar's Military Extends Detention of Su Chi Amid Crackdown on Anti Coup Protesters. So, as Andy told, like as Andy told me, you know, you know, like any region aside from the West, there's a lot of controversies. There's a lot of, you know, hard hitting things happening to governments, to people who are aiming for democracy. And well, the one thing I'll say about uh, my thoughts on Myanmar is um, if you know anything about Malaysia, uh, no, <laughs> Myanmar or Burma, uh, as it Myanmar. otherwise is known as, is um, Myanmar has had one of the longest civil wars in the world for like over 70 years. And you have all these ethnic groups that don't belong together that are together. Um, the one thing that's happened to uh, Sung Kee in the past couple of years is uh, the Myanmar military was waging a campaign of genocide against a Muslim minority group called the Rohingya, sort of forcing them out. And the thing what uh, Key did was sort of defend the military and said, oh, this isn't happening. None of this is happening. 
and she basically denied that genocide was happening, even though it clearly was. So that cost her a lot of credibility internationally. Uh, so I, I'm not a fan of her anymore, I will admit. So, Well, wait a second. So the thing with that is, let's roll back. Let's roll back a bit. So Aung San Suu Kyi, she rose to power and she has a massive fan base, right? And she rose to power because her message was that there's corruption going on in Myanmar. Which there clearly was. Yeah, I agree with her there. Well, there clearly is. And the thing is, that's that's her message when she started. Like Andy, like you said, you know, the Rohingya issue, the Rohingya refugees. You know, based on my experience, I do see Rohingya refugees in Malaysia. You know, when... Because a lot of ref, uh, Rohingya refugees, they're flooding, right? And they fled to nearby Asian regions. One of them is Malaysia. And... The thing with, and a lot of people do analyze this, you know, the, I would say the fall of Aung San Suu Kyi, I don't think it's a fall yet. I just think that, you know, like Andy says, uh, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi does not believe that this genocide is a genocide. So I see your point, Andy, when you mentioned that, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi has controversies, much like a lot of politicians in the world. So, you know, based on this, you know, Aung San Suu Kyi, right now, she's in house arrest again, and the military government has staged a coup, and now there's a ton of protesters going on. And protests has been happening a lot in the past few years, one has happened in Toronto, Canada. One has happened in the United States and also, you know, in Hong Kong and also in Myanmar. So based on these protests, what do you think, Andy? Like, do these protests do anything? But in the context of Myanmar, though, because we know protests could work in, in some ways in the United States. But what about a country in the Southeast Asia? Um, so one thing you compare to is the still ongoing protest in Belarus and Russia. Uh, you both have autocratic governments where there is some very limited freedom. Uh, but basically, I think I think what might happen might be a situation similar to uh, like Belarus, especially. What you know what happened in Belarus last year, right? There was a it was sort of the same situation with a, a rigged election. Uh, but the Belarus election was much more rigged. So I think I think something like that's much more similar. Like they're talking about cutting out internet access in Myanmar to stop the spread of uh, news about protesting and organizing and protesting. So I think um, having studied in political science, um, one way uh, people stay in power is they either have like nuclear weapons or they control information, such as the case of China. So I think... I don't think the pro I have no idea what's going to happen to be honest with you. I would love, I think the people in Myanmar should be free to decide their fate and uh, find a ruler who's good for them. I would hope it's not Suu Kyi again, because just her leadership with the Rohingya crisis has shown sort of some undesirable qualities. Um, so that's, that's honestly well, what wait. I think. Well, well, wait, if even I will say, even if you don't like Aung San Suu Kyi and like I, I appreciate I, the work I, she's done. She's done a lot for bringing democracy to the country, but her role in denying like 
a genocide is pretty severe, in my opinion. Of course that's it's really, yeah, really of course bad. it's severe. Yeah, it's severe. Like that's what I meant by undesirable qualities. Like she denied it. No, no, I'm agreeing with you here. I'm just saying. If she steps down and if she's out of the political spotlight, who's gonna take over? The military government. And isn't that the worst worst um, case scenario at this point? The military takes back over again? Well, they're um, they have a lot of power right now. And if you know anything about the history of Myanmar, the military is always required in the constitution to have like a couple of seats in the cabinet and uh, parliament so they still have a lot of power and they have their own political party that they back so they have a lot of power that way the thing i'm trying to say is even with, with this i i get all that the thing is you know if Aung san Suu Kyi leaves and she still has a message about democracy i definitely don't like that she's not recognizing the genocide happening in myanmar but she's still against the military government and if she leaves who's going to take her place the nl the NLD, the National League of... Is it National? Well, it's NLD. Like, mm-hmm. are, is someone going to take her place in this role? Like, her influence is already so massive in Myanmar. Her, like, it's so influenced to the point where she's been winning elections and she won the election last November. But the military government, the government said it was fraud. So the thing with this, Andy, is just that there's an... There's consequences that could lead to worse scenarios. Like you said, like the thing I see is that if she leaves, the military government takes over. If she stays, like her actions against like certain issues, like you said, the the Rohingya refugees, still terrible. But at least there's a, I would say a being that's still against the military government. So really... Is there a winning side? Like, is there a winning result here? Like, winning choice about all this, Andy? Like, what do you think? Well, the one thing I will say is we haven't talked about how the international world has probably responded. I don't know if the new presidency of Joe Biden has placed sanctions or the European Union has followed with sanctions. I think the best thing to actually help remedy the situation would be international pressure, like kind of what helped it before and help bring them back to the table. It's kind of, it's not like Iran and the nuclear deal, but he kind of want, he put on the sanctions, he forced them to come to the table. You say, hey, we, this is not cool. Uh, you need to have stop having so much power in the government. You need to have elections again. Release uh, Suu Kyi again. So I think the best thing to do internally in Myanmar, I have no idea because the country is so messed up internally with all the different ethnic groups. And that's just, you have like Christians and Buddhists and Muslims there. Like it's such a mess and many other people. Like there's even a group of people called Karens or something, apparently like that's an actual thing. Yeah. Um, but international, international pressure probably would be the best way to resolve this. In my opinion. I like when you mentioned like these multiple ethnicities, the thing with like the context of Canada, you know, Canada's very, like they accept all these ethnicities. It's just that in the context of Myanmar, the nationalism is just so strong. So it's very hard for all these ethnicities to, con- I, I would say, conjoin together. Get along. Well, you also have to look at historical context. So Myanmar, Myanmar had a fairly violent 
independence and they again won the world's longest running civil wars so you look at canada canada was founded as a pretty peaceful nation we still have our own issues we've had violence but not to the extent of like america or myanmar or something we didn't have civil wars i mean the worst is he had a bunch of drunken british guys uh try and overthrow the government but that, that was it though that was the worst and um so it is it also if you, you have to look at the history of the country too you have to realize how that impacts the present and that's why this also relates to a lot of issues in the middle east where you have so many different people groups that don't belong together uh like particularly like uh iraq and syria where look at the consequences of that right uh so it, it is very difficult i'm not burmese or me i don't know what the plural of myanmar is i don't know what they call themselves when it comes to that um, I was going to ask you, though, Malaysia is a fairly diverse country, though. I mean, it is a Muslim-majority country, yeah. from what I understand, right? It's but a there is, Islamic state. I mean, how much how much of the population is Chinese? Because you are Malaysian-Chinese, right? So, they're, the majority is, uh, we call it Malay, so they're Muslims. Uh, the, I would say there's a close, even number compared with Chinese and uh, Indians. The thing with Malaysia is, I, uh, like I just mentioned, it's an Islamic state. And that's a whole other topic we can get into in the future uh, regarding religion, right? When How does a country fare when religion runs a country? And, you know, much like Myanmar, you know, there's a lot of censorship. You know, Malaysia had its own history of, you know, of how... The past government, so not the current government, was. But did they, did they have protests. like a civil war, or like levels of violence, like how, how severe? Like I know there's obviously probably ethnic strife because I know all the stuff of Singapore, I know all that. But yeah. um, was there like lots of ethnic strife or civil wars in the country or? Civil war, I from what I'm remembering, I don't think so. Like the thing is. Malaysia was run immediately by what was the initial main political party ever since it's ever since it was founded ever ever since it was independent from uh, I, I assume the British colonies. So ever since then, that political party had no opponent until the last election. But there's a whole other issue with that because there's a. Uh, there's definitely a whole other issue with that. So basically, the last prime minister, who was the fourth prime minister, if I remember correctly, is you know he re- he stepped down because of certain controversies, and we can get into that in the future episodes. Uh, we'll see about that. So basically, with this Myanmar issue, you know, we'll wrap it up by saying you know it's a tough choice, right, Andy? Like, what can you do? I again, I think international pressure. Yeah, I think international pressure, I'm pretty sure there is, she has probably someone lined up to be her successor. I feel like she's probably planned for this. I feel like that's the thing. They, they, I don't think she should be in power again because, again, of the, the genocide. So that that's just honestly my thought. I, I will say, though, if you say there's people who will follow up from her, if she were to step down, I feel like they would have, I feel like her and her, I would say the person that will follow up from her, is going to have like the same amount of, you know, like theories, political theories and thoughts when they step into power. Well, you need also the same charisma, right? Like as her, I don't know how charismatic as of a leader she is, but I'm assuming she's probably 
pretty powerful. You need someone with the same amount of power, I think. So, but I feel like it it can be resolved. So, but again, you and I are not from there. We don't know fully. We don't know what it's like to be uh, Burmese or anything. So, yep. So this podcast is just to educate, analyze, and debate everybody. So, mm-hmm. Andy, yep. let's move on to our final topic of the day, and I'm gonna read the title title of the article real quick so it's from ctv news the title is covax what is the un vaccine plan for poor countries and why does it matter so to give a little context about this you know so covax what is covax so essentially covax is developed or it's a essentially a plan developed by the world health organization and a couple of partners and it's basically a cooperative program that is aimed to help low and middle income countries to get equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines and the case of this is that some countries will be able to pay for them in a lower price and some will be able to get them for free in a donation type of way from from the uh, World Health Organization and in a way from some charities. So to give just a slightly a bit more context, so the COVAX plan, you know, it hopes to deploy about 336 million doses by the end of June. So June 2021. So you know about this COVID-19 that's been going on, right, Andy? It's been going on since... God, no. I, I, I have not heard a single thing. I'm living under a rock for the past year. COVID. <laughs> so, co- <laughs> uh, so I do know what's going on with COVAX. I have a very brief understanding of it. I think it's very flawed from what I understand because a lot of like uh, first world countries are hogging, like I think, like 80% of the vaccine supply in the world, from what I understand. Don't quote me on that. So it's like 14% of the world's population, which... I am very eager to get a vaccine. I'm very eager to get a vaccine for my grandmother because that's sort of like a burden of uh, worry on myself. I'm very eager for her to get it. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think I really hate the idea of vaccine nationalism. It just it really makes me angry, but I can understand it. Could you explain a little bit about what do you mean by vaccine nationalism? Well, vaccine nationalism. So let's say a country comes up with a vaccine, they're developing it, and... Um, they're the ones that own it. So they're like, oh, we need to save for our people. Like they're kind of like Gollum, Lord of the Rings. They're like, oh, pre- my precious, my precious. Like they're kind of like okay. that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the vaccines that they do give to other countries, it's usually very meager. And like Mondero and Pfizer, like the United States and particularly Britain and Israel, they've like done so well when it comes to vaccinating people, especially Israel. I think they vaccinated nearly like 100% of their population. And then Britain's like, like getting it like that in the United States is like really, really sure. whipping it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, it's just, <laughs> I, I just really don't like the idea of vaccine nationalism, but I, I can understand it. It just, it also has to do with Canada, their manufacturing abilities for vaccines, but we can talk about that later. Well, you know, like the thing with this is that we talk about vaccine rollout plans and obviously developed countries are going to get them first you know they can pay for it the logistics makes sense and you know a lot of these 
corporations that developed these vaccines. You know, I think the first one was Pfizer, right? Based in the U.S. Yep. So uh, exactly. You know, some company that's based in the U.S. is obviously going to provide vaccines to the U.S. first. So internationally, there's a lot of corporations who are trying to develop their own vaccines. Recently, I've heard that Oxford University has already developed a vaccine. Yeah, AstraZeneca or... one. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yes, yes, they have, and I think uh, Canada is on the verge of approving it. Um, they're they were meant to approve it this week, but I think they they probably delayed it by another couple of weeks, which is very frustrating. I think we really need to speed up that process. But of course, you have all the variants out there, which. Uh, so frustrating and Ontario just reopened but again this is a whole another uh, whole another whole another issue yeah well the thing with COVID vaccine rollouts is that I think you've talked to me about this before the problem with why the progress is so slow is the logistical sides right so basically distributing the vaccines to these countries takes a long time there's a specific procedure about you have to like keep the vaccine in the cold temperature, Andy? Well, it's not, it's not really logistics for Canada. I think the biggest problem for Canada is that we have a lack of uh, manufacturing when it comes to vaccines. We don't have any domestic uh, vaccine producing factories or anything. I mean, India is like doing fantastic work when it comes to uh, producing vaccines, especially the AstraZeneca one. But the thing you have to look with like India and the United States and Britain is that they have big populations they're major centers of commerce and industry. So they more or less have the ability, especially the United States, more, more the United States, uh, they have the ability to manufacture anything that they need. Uh, and especially India, just because of the population, the manpower that they have. Canada, we only have 37 million people and we're fairly spread out or we live within like 500 kilometers of the border. So, yeah. I mean, it, it's like, and then you have people way up north. And like, again, this is where logistics come in, but the logistics isn't as... It's not as difficult as it seems. I think, I just think it's a lack of manufacturing capabilities that we have here in Canada. But the the problem is though logistics when it comes to smaller countries like you have all these sub-Saharan African countries and countries like Malaysia, for example, and other uh, countries, is a uh, lack of refrigeration equipment, poor infrastructure, poor poor everything. From what I understand, a lot of these countries, and especially in Africa, are not going to get the vaccine until like twenty twenty three or twenty twenty four, and then like. I think well, I, I think... well, hold on, Andy. So for Malaysia, uh, oh yeah, I don't know. Gonna... No, no, no. For sub-Saharan uh, countries, like you say, like Africa, I will say it will be a little bit later. For Malaysia, though, interestingly, it happened recently. So Malaysia is going to get the vaccine rollout by the end of February. Oh, that's terrible. So you can see. So based on this conversation we're having, right? You can see the developed countries are getting it first. And then the developing developing countries are getting it second, and then underdeveloped countries are getting it third. So, I think that's exactly what this Covax plan is for. Then, like, I would say I kind of support this, though, Andy. Like, I don't know. Like, the thing is with un, like underdeveloped well, again, this countries. Is, this is the problem with vaccine nationalism, though. I think it's it's a very flawed initiative. I think it really needs improvement because um, he just uh so frustrating. Um, yeah, I don't know. I'm just, I think I'm so tired of being locked down. Ontario just came out of its second lockdown and I pray to God it does not go into a third lockdown. Well, we um, are. Variants right not now. help. And seeing headlines saying like, oh, this vaccine isn't as effective against the variant. It's kind of like, <laughs> it's just so frustrating. 
like it's so frustrating and i for me it's very personal because i'm just i have my grandmother who's 88 and she's very very uh vulnerable she's living by herself she's very lucky to still be living by herself but i think it's just honestly me being really worried about my grandmother and people around me just well andy you know andy so look everyone's feeling the same thing oh yeah there's exactly but the thing is i feel like it's it's certainly going to be way worse for underdeveloping countries like that. Oh, so it's people, going to be horrible. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm thinking like, more about myself here. It's a little selfish on my part, I will admit. So so it's tougher for them. Oh, I, like, I can't the imagine the is, agony. Yeah. yeah. Like the thing is, like with this equitable access for this COVAX thing, I feel like, I don't know, I feel like aside from your opinion, I feel like it's actually a good thing i do get what you're talking about when when you say like the vaccine. i think it's a great thing i really appreciate the effort behind it but i think it's just vaccine nationalism and lack of manufacturing capabilities a lot of these countries including canada does not help and then logistics i think we will be able to vaccinate i mean we got rid of smallpox we're on the verge of getting rid of polio it is possible to yeah. eradicate diseases i think the thing of covid it will become endemic which sort of means comes like the flu or something but i think what they're saying is we'll have treatments by the end of the year where we can just kind of treat it like the, the regular flu and um yeah it's just it's it's a long process yeah i mean i i can't really worry about it i can only really worry about myself and my family i mean i it's great to talk about it but you and i can't really do anything about it just sitting in our uh, rooms and stuff like that's what this podcast is for i know (laughs) thing we we can't do anything besides talk about it so yeah well essentially so what let's like kind of have this discussion lead to the point like do you think this Kovacs plan will work though. I know you talk about vaccine nationalism, but what what it, it is like the work. percentage? It, it 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 will work. I think not a percentage, but I think it will work. I think my guess will probably take because this has never been done in the history of mankind, right? So you also have to look at that. This is That's like true. the greatest uh, mass immunization campaign in all of history. Uh, so I think I think a majority of first world countries. I think by the end of the year, they'll have maybe like 50 to 60% of their populations vaccinated. I think in Canada, they said they'll have like 14 million people be able to get vaccinated by like April, May, which is like fantastic. Like May, June, which is like absolutely fantastic. That made me so happy to see that, which is really, really good. That's nearly half the population. So that's like fantastic. I predict like within 10 years, I think we'll be able to vaccinate the majority of the world population. I think 10 years. Yeah. Or we'll have to learn. We'll have to learn how to live with this. I think that's the unfortunate thing because if there is a third lockdown in Ontario, people are not gonna. People are just not gonna follow it. I mean, how many lockdowns has Malaysia had? Ooh, uh, I think similar around two to three. Yeah, and in Europe, they've had like I think the UK is they just have their third lockdown, and like I think some countries even talking about fourth lockdown. So it's just kind of like I I support the public health guidelines but at the same time it's like so so uh it's frustrating and then <laughs> well, well i'm i'm trying this to clarify whole, whole another thing though so um well, i'm trying to clarify what you're trying to say because like when it comes to lockdowns it's a whole complicated thing because there's some like there's some things we can do that shouldn't be in lockdown right like essential essential stuff aren't being locked down like getting groceries but you know there's like, like some other activities that you can do 
that does not have that kind of has like the same amount of like i i guess like level when it comes to like getting groceries so maybe like going out for a run or like something similar to that that involves like outdoors so i get like the the frustration of that but i think andy i think the succession rate will definitely be over 50 but i don't think it's gonna take 10 years it's obviously gonna be less well again like you're gonna have people are gonna resist it too we haven't talked about anti-vaxxers at all i mean they're gonna be a huge problem and again it's just the logistics of particularly these like underdeveloped countries like particularly in africa i think it's gonna be or who knows i mean who knows i probably don't know enough about the situation i have a family friend who's uh one of the leading infectious disease experts in Canada. So they, they probably know more about it than me. I could probably ask them. So, yeah. Yeah, that will be great. So I will say, to kind of wrap this up, so the COVID uh, vaccine rollout plan, you know, so what do you think about its current progress? So do you think it's been going well? In Canada? Terrible? Well, in general, you know, in, in general, um, Well, the United United States, Britain, and Israel, um, it's going, like, fantastic. I mean, Israel's done the best out of anyone. Like, they've nearly, I think they've vaccinated, like, 90% of their population. Or it's, like, above 50%, like, some ridiculously high number. And um, they're they're already talking about doing lots of stuff. Um, so I think it's going really well. In Canada, we're kind of the mercy of other countries. Because, again, we don't have the manufacturing yeah. capabilities, right? So, yeah. Um, yeah, I think... I think everyone's doing the best they can. I mean, we've never dealt with anything like this. We just kind of have to deal with it as it comes. And we started to find out the best situation. Cause again, we haven't, we've never dealt with anything like this before. Like just have to persevere. Yeah. It's not like the Spanish flu where it went away. We're actually trying to vaccinate everyone against it. So yeah, it's just, that's a, yeah. Yeah. It's a long time ago. Spanish flu. Well, yeah, it's just, we kind of have to just deal with it as we go. That's kind of, I honestly kind of think that's the best. I think I think everyone's trying the best they can. I think, and I can understand everyone, but yeah, we just have to do the best we can. What about what about you, Michael? What do you think of how it's going? Just to end this off, I'm just gonna say with uh, one word, and you can like imitate me on this, like whether it's positive or negative. I'm gonna say positive. What about you, Andy? Positive or negative? Uh, I'm leaning a little more towards the negative of this. I think it's just my overall feelings, but I'm tired of being in lockdown. Um, well, you and me both, really. Yeah, really. I think I'm I'm more mixed, a little little more towards the negative. I'm just I'm very frustrated, to be honest with you. Very yeah, frustrated. It's understandable. How going. Yeah, it's understandable. Yeah. So, thank you everyone for listening to our first ever episode. I hope you liked it. If you have any feedback, you know, let us know on our Twitter, which is at, at the Global Over. And don't forget our name of our podcast is called the Global Overpass. And just to give a, bit, give a little bit of context, what why we named our podcast the Global Overpass is essentially we're trying to bridge between the, I would say, global states, global countries. And that overpass is kind of like that way to do it, like bridging between the east and the west and you know and he's from the west i'm from the east so thank you for listening to our first ever episode is there anything you want to say andy just to end this thing 
thanks guys for listening and uh thank you for listening to my ranting uh, and i hope you guys have a fantastic day i really look forward to hearing you guys next time so all right thank you and make sure to tune in next time thank you sayonara <laughs>